We're in this series called The Almost. We're studying about tension and why tension is important. The tension between what was and what will be. And um, I, was, I wasn't necessarily thinking about tension this week, but I got on one of those YouTube spirals. You, ever, you know, we've all been on those. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, we know. It's shame, right? It's just shame that we carry because like, I can't believe I watched it. Well, this is where I ended up. I ended up at a Canadian public service announcement <laughs> about what to do if you fall through the ice, <laughs> which is... I guess helpful, not so much for me right now, but it got me thinking about tension because this guy's like walking out on the ice and it's like he's nervous and he's this and that. And then he falls in the water, which has got to be motivating. And he's like, now what you do when you're in the water, and I'm like, how is he so calm? He's like, now what you do is you just don't allow the water to make you cold. Just, just be calm and then it's fine. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? Like, clearly you're Canadian because you've been drinking some molasses or some, some syrup to make you think that this is not cold. It's cold. And he's like, by the way, do you know how to get out of the ice? Do any of you know? No, because you do not spend as much time on the Internet as I do, apparently. So this is what you do. I will get to the point of this later. But um, what is imp- this is what you do. If you go down the ice, obviously you put your hands out like this so you don't go anymore. And then you begin to kick so that your body goes horizontal. And then you begin to work your way out. So, you're welcome. Okay, but it got me thinking about tension. I realized the tension kind of motivates us, right? Tension sort of, it sort of motivates us. Like when we live in the tension, we're, we're motivated. We're, we're really, tension wakes us up. It keeps us awake. It, it, you know, our eyes are open, our ears are open. We are living in the tension. And that is simply electric, right? We become aware of everything in a different way. We have, because we got to stop sleeping through life, friends. Everything in our life, all the media, all television, everything, it's just telling us to dull, 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 dull everything out. And we have to live these lives that are absolutely electric. And when we're living in the tension, we begin to realize that. Listen, if you want to know what that's like, um, this week we were going out to lunch for Karen, our children's director's um, birthday. And so we went out to a restaurant up here and we're all, somehow the conversation got around to what sort of weapons the women in our office have in their purses. And there were a lot. Just for the record, don't mess with the women that work at this church. They are armed and prepared, which I didn't know. And so, you know, people are bringing out this and that and the other thing. And then, and then Christiane, yeah, I'm going to tell you. Christiane brings out a taser. First, well, first of all, first of all, she brings, out, she brings out pepper spray, but pepper spray that is like worked into a glove. She's like, you know, so you can do other things and use the pepper spray. And I'm like, oh, I didn't realize that was a multitasking situation. But anyway, she's got that. Then she takes out this taser, and she's like looking at it. It looks, it looks very nice. It looks very innocuous. And then she turns it on. Now I'm sitting right next to her. She doesn't hit me with it. Thank God. But she, she flips it on just for a little bit. You know, and it does that crackling noise that electricity does. And everyone in the whole restaurant was like, whoo. What's happening? Because that's the way, that's what tension does, right? All of a sudden the tension in the room went up and there was electricity and everybody's ready to go. Well, this is, this is what I, we're crackling awake when we're living in the tension, right? And the tension also reminds us that there more, there's more. When this guy's walking out over the ice, he's very clear 
on the fact that underneath the ice, there's a lot of incredibly cold water. And when we live in the tension, we recognize that we are not just living just, just these two-dimensional lives. We're living these three-dimensional lives that go deep that are so much more than we ever could imagine. Right? And scriptures prompt us towards this idea that there is so much more. It prompts us to change. It prompts us to grow. It prompts us to break through. It prompts us to live with that electricity. And that's, what we, that's why we go to scripture and to see that and to live that way. So today we're going to talk about a story of healing, restoration, and evangelism. And it's a packed full story, so we're going to jump in pretty quick. And as some of you may remember, the Pastor Mike preached this, was it at the end of the summer last year? I think it was around the end of the summer last year. Pastor Mike preached on these same texts. Now, I'm going to preach on it again, not because he didn't do a good job. He did a very good job. He did a fantastic job. I'm just going to look at it from a different perspective a little bit. We're starting with chapter 5 of Mark, reading from the New Living Translation. It begins like this. So they arrived on the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. So we're going to be talking about the Gerasene demoniac or the Gadarene demoniac. Um, that's, the, that's the name of this particular story. And, and this is happening right after calming the storm, remember. So the disciples should kind of be living in the tension and living in the almost and really recognize what's going on because they've just glimpsed into the almost in a powerful way as Jesus calmed the storm and said, peace, be still. They should be ready for anything, and they are. And it says this in verse 2, when Jesus stepped out of the boat or climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the seminary. (laughs) Is that a Freudian slip? Is that what that is? comes out from the cemetery to meet him. All right, now, (coughs) that's pretty funny, actually. Um, Here's the thing. Um, There's this curiosity that evil has when holy shows up, right? And this is true. And in fact, when you try to get your life right, when you try to seek holiness in your life, all kinds of, of gunk will show up and try to stick to you. And you know this is true. If you've been living a life that is not what you believe God wants and you're trying to get your life straight or you know somebody, you've got family members, you've got kids that are trying to get their life straight and they seem to have a really hard time with it because it seems like evil is always pulling them back. It absolutely is because first of all, it's very curious about holiness and second of all, it wants to pull you back in because evil is miserable and miserable loves company. And so that's what happens all the time. So if you've got family members, if you yourself are working hard, understand that if you are having a trouble, if you are having trouble with evil and it seems that it's harder and harder to get away from, that's because you're making progress. It's because evil is so fascinated and curious that you are becoming holy and it doesn't want to see you do that. By the way, it's interesting in the church too. If you've been living a life, if you've been living a Christian life, shall we say, that is very extrinsic, that is very kind of, you know, your, your, somebody else's faith, a faith that is very legalistic, a faith that is very ritual oriented, and you meet Jesus and you fall in love with Jesus and all of a sudden you experience that freedom that Jesus has, the church people are going to be the ones to try and pull you back to that legalism. You know why? Because legalism is miserable and misery loves company. And so, listen, when Jesus shows up, immediately evil's like, well, you need to see what's going on. So it begins to walk to him. It says, a man lived among the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. 
right? This man, he, he had supernatural strength and he had a willingness to live among the uncleanliness of dead bodies. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrist and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Now, now, different commentators say different things about people trying to subdue him. Some said that they were being abusive to him. Some said that they were trying to help him and that's why they were binding him. Some said that, um, that they were just simply trying to protect themselves because he was a danger not only to himself, but to them as well. I don't know which one is necessarily true. I'm not really sure that it necessarily matters. But what we find out is that there was something that was supernatural that was happening. They might have been trying to help. They might have been trying to harm. They might have been trying to protect. Either way, they couldn't handle him. But let's take a moment, just for a second. I, I want to ask a question. Is demon possession even a thing? Is it even a real thing? Now, um, some of you are going to be like, yeah, absolutely, we've heard all about it. Some of you are going to say, yes, absolutely, I've experienced certain things. Some of you are going to say, absolutely not, I'm a scientist, and no, that's not true. I was having a conversation with a buddy of mine who's a pastor in this area, um, and, and he said, you know, don't you think it's interesting? He was basically like, ah, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know if this is true, I don't know if this happens at all. And I was like, oh, why is that? That's interesting, because you're a person of faith, obviously, you're a faith leader. Why, why do you think that this is not true? And he said, well, listen, in 100 years, no doctor at Loma Linda has diagnosed demon possession for anything. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then I thought, I don't know why a doctor would. That's not really their world. Like, for instance, somebody comes in and is like, yeah, you know, my stomach kind of hurts. I'm like, it's a spleen. It's your spleen. I don't do that because that's not my world. So I, I'm not sure. And, and I think this, it's certainly easy for people of faith to say any sort of mental illness is a demon possession. I've heard that too. And you guys have heard me say, I had one time somebody come to me after a talk and asked me to exercise the demon of chocolate from them. <laughs> and I was like, no. I'm, I'm not going to, I don't I'm not going to do that. And they're like, no, there's a demon inside me and all it wants is chocolate. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. And by the way, in those situations, you can't laugh. And I was like, huh, maybe it's not a demon. Maybe you like chocolate. <laughs> and she said, I am powerless to do anything about this. It must be a demon. I don't remember what else I said. I'm sure it was inappropriate, and I did not, I did not pray the demon of chocolate out of her. Um, so, so we, you know, people of faith, you can have a tendency to go too far on that road. Um, but people of science, you know, if you're a believer, you got to believe there's there's a little something more. And so I think you have to allow for for the supernatural in some points. And I think you need to be mindful of that, wise about that. And I hope th I hope that what I'm saying is not dangerous because I'm not asking anybody to go wild on this. But be thoughtful about it. So, um, but regardless of all that, regardless of what you think about it, regardless of what I think about it, um, we do need to know this, that Mark, the disciple, believed it. And that's why he wrote it down. And he believed, regardless of what we believed, and the rendering of this story tells us that they believed that this happened. Even if we don't believe it went down like that, we can believe in what it tells us about God and about the almost. So we can at least move in that direction, regardless of where you are on the spectrum of things. So that keeps us common and moving forward in the text. Mark 5, 5. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. Self-harm, again, unclean. 
what we know about this more than anything is that this is a picture of a, of a pitiful existence. Um, and so this is a tragic scene is what Jesus is stepping up to. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. Now this is kind of interesting because there seems to be a little bit of a delineation between what the man was doing and what the demon was doing. So the man comes and the man is very composed and subdued and lays himself on the ground in front of Jesus. That seems to be the man's response. We'll see the demon's response in just a moment. But, but have you noticed that when you're close to Jesus, um, there's, there's a calm that comes over composure in the presence of Jesus. Jesus is always calm. I don't know if you've read his stories, but I mean, in the midst of the storm last week, he's calm. In the midst of, of going, going to the, the cross, Jesus is calm. He's not happy about it, but he's calm. In the midst of everything, Jesus had a way to remain calm. This is, by the way, why we push you towards our study guides and why we want you to be in scripture every single day. Because the closer you are to Jesus, the more you can handle the storms in your life with some semblance of calm because you know that things are going to be okay because the Lord of all has got your back. And this is why we want you to be in Scripture every single day. So make sure you pick up a study guide on your way out if you can. And we apologize that they were a little late this, this series. Um, <clears throat> it, the holidays kind of messed up the printing situation. So the, new, the next one for our next series is almost finished and we're working on that. We'll have that more in time. And we appreciate your little bit of extra giving for those. But anyway, back to the text. Um, <clears throat> So now we've seen the man's response, calm, composed, bows down. Now we're about to see the demon's response. With a shriek, he screamed, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high? Son of the most high, in the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. Listen, in the face of such holiness, in the face of such power, evil is scared. But there's some interesting things going on here because according to the faith tradition at the time, according to the spiritual and religious practice at the time, if a demon knew your name, you had real problems. And he didn't just know Jesus' name, he actually knew his position as well. He's affirming Jesus as the Son of God, but he's not doing it so that you know, he could be familiar with Jesus. He's calling him son of the most high God in this particular phrase in order to render Jesus ineffective in his exorcism, if you will. Right, because knowing someone's name is important and knowing the name of a demon was thought to assist in exorcism. And just for the record, the next phrase, Matthew or Mark 5, 8, it says this, for Jesus had already said to the spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. And it's a really awkward phrasing if you read it in the Greek. Even if you read it in the English, it's a little bit awkward. This is what I think happened. I've been writing a lot for these series guides and stuff. And when you get a concept in your head or you're telling a story, you start to write like crazy. You start to get really excited. And then you realize you forgot something and you got to jump back. Now with us, with computers, it's super easy. I just move the cursor, jump back in and go. Mark's telling this story and he says, you know, the, the demon is screaming and he's saying this and da, da, da. And then he goes, oh, for Jesus had already said to the spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. So I think Mark just got a little bit of ahead of himself. So if you read it and it feels a little awkward, it actually kind of is. But he commands the demon, the unclean spirit. He's like, come out. And the use of the title of Son of the Most High God must have been the demon's last-ditch effort to render Jesus ineffective. But Jesus did what Jesus always does. When he asks about, when, when the demon calls him by name, he goes, hey, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion. Legion. 
because there are many of us inside the man. Now, I don't know how many you think there are inside the man, but we need to understand a few things. First of all, a legion in the Roman army had four to 6,000 people, right? And, um, and later on, we find out that there's 2,000 pigs that are thrown into the sea. Hopefully that's not a spoiler for any of you. You know the story a little bit. But um, there, there's 2,000. Don't be confused that those are the numbers of demons that are in there. Another way to translate this term legion is mob. And so it, that, sometimes that is used as well. What we can know is that the young man was deeply troubled by these entities. And so if, if you kind of grew up with the idea like a legion is a thousand, he had a thousand demons. I don't know that he had a thousand demons, but just to be clear, I don't know what's a lot of demons to have inside you, right? It feels like any is a lot. So if you feel a little disappointed that I don't have a specific number for you, it's okay. It's still more than you'd want. I'm pretty sure. So, then the evil spirit <clears throat> begged him again and again, do not send us to some distant place. Now, this reflects an interesting idea that geography, that demons are somehow connected to geography, right? So they're saying, hey, don't send us to some other place. By the way, and don't answer, don't answer like out loud, but if any of you have seen a movie about like a ghost or a demon or something like that and like a haunted house, you, you've noticed that it... Um, that it often has, it often is connected to a particular place that comes from somewhere. That comes from the, the, the feeling of the ancients that, yeah, demons are stuck to certain places and that types of thing. And this, this is along that same line. Whether Mark believed that necessarily or not, the demon seems to have said that in the rendering of the story. So that, that's just kind of an interesting point that we need to make. It, like they're being bound to a place. But right next to it, there happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Again, obviously, this is not a Jewish area that we're in, right? Cemeteries and pigs, both of these things are anathema. Both of these things are not to be part of a Jewish life, says, um, the Scripture says to us in Leviticus 17, right? So, so the demon says, send us into these pigs. Let us enter them. Now, if you are somebody who really loves pigs and you really see a problem like kind of ecologically and environmentally with this story, I completely understand. But you need to know that a first century Jewish man was not so interested in the pigs, right? That was not a big deal for them. So if that's like, if you're kind of a, a softie and you love 2,000 pigs, don't, that's not the point of the story. Don't get derailed, right? That's not a big deal for them. The point was more important than the pig. But it did create issues in the region, right? Why did it create issues? Create issues because that was the economy of the region. And we'll see that in a little bit. So it says in verse 13, Jesus gave them permission. Now, I don't know if you've heard this story and heard that Jesus sent them into the pigs, but that is not what happened. Jesus gave them permission. He stepped away and said, okay, you can do that. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. We can assume the destruction of the demons with the destruction of the pigs at this point. But can I set this up visually for you for a second? Because I don't know if you've thought about this visually, right? You've got, you've got a cemetery, you've got a demon-possessed man, you've got the disciples rolling up on the other side of the lake, um, they're having this conversation. Demons go into the pigs, 2,000. That's a lot of pigs. They go over the hillside into the lake that they just come from. Do you know what happens to pigs when they drown? They just float. So there's just 2,000 pigs floating in the lake. 
which you've never thought about before. You're just like, yeah, they drowned in the lake. What happened? The pigs, they had to go somewhere. They were there. 2,000, that's disgusting. That's also quite a spectacle, isn't it? That's something to look at. I mean, you don't see 2,000 pigs just floating in the lake very often. And if you do, I don't know what kind of life you're living. And I don't want to be a part of it, right? Verse 14, the herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they went. People rushed out to see what had happened because, come on, it's a spectacle. Sometimes Jesus uses spectacle, right? Jesus is not always just quietly whispering. Sometimes he uses a spectacle to help people understand who he is. And in fact, we will see that next week that he kind of creates a little bit of a spectacle when he heals a blind man. And he does it on purpose, Right? He's not always quiet. This miracle became a spectacle because he wanted people to know what was going on. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed, perfectly sane. And of course, they were afraid. Right? Because that's the reaction when you look into the almost. It's fear. But there's another thing that happens through these miracles that we cannot forget. And we will notice it in every single one of the miracles that we see. There's one other thing that happens. The outcome of the miracles are always, or is always, and I couldn't figure out if it was are always or is always, so I put are always, and now it feels like that's wrong. The outcome of the miracles is always reconciliation. That means they got to go back home. And by the way, those of you who work in healthcare. Often that is exactly your job as well. Your job is to get people back to their lives. Your job is to get people back to the, the, the things that they enjoy, the life that they were living before. It's reconciliation. And for Jesus, there was a specific word that he probably would have used and could have used. In fact, the Jewish tradition still uses it all the time. It's a Hebrew word. It's called shalom. And that means that, that you are fully reconciled to God, fully reconciled to the people around you, and even fully reconciled to the earth. So we can even use that term in the story that we heard last week of Jesus calming the storm. Reconciliation, that always happens when a miracle happens because people are re reconciled to the life they were living before. And this man who was crazy is now sane and he's reconciled, but the people don't know what to do with it. Then those that had seen what had happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs. Why did they tell other people? Because, come on, everybody loves gossip. And the moment you tell somebody, you can't, you're not going to believe what happened. We all lean in. But, but now something interesting happens. And the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. Now, why would you think they would do that? You would think they just saw this happen. And regardless of the pig situation, which is, you know, significant, regardless of the pig situation, at least you see this man and you see that he's been healed. And you're like, man, this is God. He must have done something amazing. But that's not what happened. This miracle didn't compel them to faith. Miracles don't confirm or create faith. In fact, they were more afraid than they were willing to believe. But what we understand now is that conversion is a process. Conversion doesn't just happen instantaneously, by and large. It can, but by and large it doesn't. Conversion is a process. We see that there was more acceptance later on in this region. But right now they were confronted with simply too much power for them to deal with. Also, there are a few things that they were not ready for. They were not ready to change. I mean, that morning they had woken up and they had a, a 
pig, they were pig farmers. Pig farmers? They were pig ranchers. I don't know what you call them. They're pig herders. They were piggers. I don't know what. what. But they woke up and they were, they were, they, they had pigs. <laughs> they woke up with pigs. They weren't ready to change the whole economy of their lives to follow Jesus. They weren't ready for that. And while they may have recognized his power, they were not ready to submit to it. The demons and the man, they had. But these guys were not ready to submit to the authority of Jesus. They could recognize it. In fact, they had to because they knew something happened. But they were not submit to it yet. So that's essentially the end of the story, right? Jesus then is getting into the boat. But then, well, something more happens. As Jesus is getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. You know why? Because when you meet Jesus, you're home. This is why we're so serious about Jesus at this church. Because we know that if somebody walks in these doors and they meet Jesus in a way that they haven't met him before, they really meet Jesus, this will be their home. They'll never leave. And I can imagine when you meet Jesus in the flesh, he's your home. And when he gets in the boat, you're like, well, home's leaving. I better go. Right? And so they're ready to go and get in the boat. He's ready to go and get in the boat. He wants to because he wants to be with him. But Jesus says no. Jesus says, go home to your family. Tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful it has been. And you know what we see right here, right at this instant, right in this moment? We see that this is the beginning of the work to the Gentiles. It's the beginning of the Gentile mission. And here's what's fascinating. Mark is writing this 25 years later from when this happened, 25, 30 years later after this happened. So when Mark is writing this, Mark knows what has happened in that region. Want to know what happened? He tells us. So the man started off to visit the 10 towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. This man became an evangelist. He began, he began to go around to the 10 cities and he began to tell everyone what had happened, what Jesus had done for them, for him. This is powerful. This is why Jesus said, hey, don't get in the boat. Because Jesus knew that even his disciples going through that region would not be met with the same sort of response as this man was because this man was from Gerasene. This man was a Gadarene. And so he said, no, you need to go preach to your people. This is the beginning of us understanding that the gospel is not just for the, the nation of Israel, but it is for us as well. And we should thank Jesus for this because we're part of that Gentile mission. You know that, right? This became a very fertile area for the gospel. It took years to happen. But again, conversion is a process. Do you know that statistically, conversion takes seven years for somebody to fully believe and accept Jesus Christ? Seven years, friends. And here's the problem. What we've done is we love the bombastic spectacle, right? And we love the fear that has happened. So we decided to do our evangelism with beasts instead of Jesus. So that we could get people that same fear response that Jesus did when he did a miracle. And maybe then they'll love Jesus. We missed it. We should have started with Jesus. We should have ended with Jesus. We should just tell people about Jesus. The rest of it works itself out as we learn and grow in Scripture. But our evangelism has to be who Jesus is, what Jesus has done in our lives. We have to tell the truth, and we have to tell it to the people that we've been sent to, which is the people around us and the people that we naturally move towards. So, in the last few minutes that we have here, what have we learned about Jesus? 
about the almost and about our responses to Jesus. Well, the first thing we learn in this story is that the authority of Jesus is not to be trifled with, right? Demons bow down. Demons listen. Demons obey. Maybe we should. The authority of Jesus in our lives is powerful. But we have to not just recognize that authority. We have to submit to that authority. And that's not easy. That's not easy because it requires sacrifice and letting go of what we hold on to so dearly. So I'll ask you this question today. What wouldn't you let go of for Jesus in your life? What is just too valuable to let go of in order to follow Jesus in your life? The third thing that we learn is that others will recognize that submission and be curious about it. They'll wonder what's happening in your life. Why are you changing? They want to know. They don't always like it, but they want to know. Fourth thing is that seeing into the almost will always cause fear, awe, and even anxiety, but it will also create a renewed sense of awe and wonder and excitement about the reconciliation that can happen because we've seen into the almost through Jesus and what he's done. And because of that, we recognize that there is a before and after of the almost in your life that is often shocking. Who were you before you met Jesus and who you were after you met Jesus are different. In this text, we saw a man who was a raging maniac and ended up being reconciled and reasonable. There is a before and after when we meet Jesus and people should recognize that in our life. So let me ask you this last question. What aspects of your life reveal the almost to others? Reveal the incredible kingdom of God to other people in the world? Is it the way that you care about them in your practice? Is it the way you teach them in your classroom? Is it the way that you find joy even amidst really tough stuff when things are going on in your life? Is it the way that you treat your family, your wife or your husband, your children, that is just full with this much more love that it becomes a curious thing in the world that we live in today? Is it the way that you engage in a political conversation or, or, or in a conversation about anything that is so different than the vitriol that we often live with that people go, There's some, what, you're processing this differently. I want to know where you're coming from. What aspect of your life reveals the almost to others? Let's pray. Hey, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this story. And thank you for giving us a window into the almost so we can see who you are. We see that kingdom that is still alive and well, still exploding in the universe, Lord. Let it explode into this world through us. Lord, we just thank you so much for the way that you reconcile us back to the lives that you've given us. May we be cognizant of that, recognizing that. And when we see somebody who has been broken away, can we help step in and create that shalom in their life as well, Lord? We pray all these things in your name. You're beautiful, powerful, authoritative. That name that we call Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen.